This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, NBC News' Ryan Riley discusses his book, Sedition Hunters, how January 6th broke the justice system. He explains how citizens helped law enforcement find individuals involved in the January 6th, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. He's interviewed by political senior legal affairs reporter Kyle Cheney. Ryan, it's good to be with you in this setting as opposed to the federal courthouse where we usually spend our days. Um, and we have a lot to cover about this really remarkable book that, that um, congratulations and glad it's finally out. Um, just to start with a basic question, who, who are the sedition hunters and why did you choose to write not just a story about them as you might normally, but an entire book? What, what, tell, me, tell me about them. You know, it's a really diverse group. They're really from across the country. Uh, early on, I think there are a lot, even people who are overseas who are sort of involved in this on the open source side and bringing some of their sort of skills and technology um, to that. But really, you know, the core group that it is now are spread out all across the country and, in fact, of our different political persuasions. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, there's a key um, individual I read about in the book who uh, voted for Trump twice, which was sort of a surprise for uh, a lot of the other sedition hunters, but really just saw what happened um, on January 6th, got really you know, angry about the assault on democracy um, and sort of brought the skills that they had to the table uh, to sort of help solve uh, a lot of these crimes with a particular focus on the violent offenders. Well, tell me, when did you realize that this community of of sleuths, as you you call them, uh, just was going to be a a significant uh, part of this January 6th story? That, you know, we all saw the attack on January 6th. I think you and I had the same reaction. This is a flashpoint in American history. Uh, that deserves to be covered inside and out to understand what happened. Uh, the sleuths, though, are a very discreet sub, subset of that story. And wh- when did you realize they were going to matter so much and, and decide to you know, write, really write this book? I think it built over a few months, but my first sort of entry into it actually involved a woman who was just sentenced this week, uh, Rachel Powell. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a mother of eight, grandmother uh, of six, who's in her 40s, and she was wearing a pink hat and was known as bullhorn lady. And, you know, very early on in the first days after this, there were some irresponsible sort of social social media speculation, um, similar to sort of what we saw after the, you know, the Boston Marathon bombing, for example, where people were just throwing out these ideas. But very quickly, the community sort of coalesced around these rules is that we don't throw out names just willy-nilly. We don't put them out there. Uh, if we're not sure about them, we send things um, into the FBI. So that sort of all came about. But the way this really started out with Rachel Powell uh, was that I sort of had made an offhand uh, Twitter joke, uh, as I am I as I am sometimes uh, want to do, um, and uh, m- mentioned that, you know, because she was leading around this group of rioters saying, hey, we should probably coordinate together to take the building over a bullhorn. She sort of had a tone that reminded me of sort of someone leading you know, a tour or perhaps, right. a, you know, a chaperoning an eighth grade right, trip right. of the Capitol and like sort of a little bit flustered, um, a little bit of that tone that I sort of knew as a parent where you're kind of like, all right, at the end of your rope, hey, guys, you know, um, and I just sort of thought it was funny. So I, I said, you know, 20 bucks says this uh, ends in both criminal charges uh, and a PTA resignation. Um, so I was she's a homeschooler. I was a little bit off. Uh, but um, ultimately, that's what I got a, a tip that really brought me into this community because I got a tip from this mysterious account saying, hey, We've identified her. Um, you know, we're trying to figure out what to do. But the frustration there was is that there was all this energy of the community focused on this and getting that message out that this person has been identified, but not necessarily setting off any sort of doxing or setting off any sort of, mm-hmm. you know, so- something that could mess up this investigation because she was still out there, right? right. So ultimately, uh, Ronan Farrow uh, beat me to that uh, story. Um, but I sort of, you know, sucked it up and said, I'll get the next one. And um, then ended up working on uh, the Danny Rodriguez uh, story right. and identifying the individual who drove a stun gun 
um, into Officer Mike Fanone's neck, which is really the first major story mm-hmm. that, I, that I wrote was based on the SLUs work. And I want to get into that one more later, but I, I am curious, sort of, you know, the sedition hunters, as you described them, the sleuths, have become sort of this adjunct, essentially, of the FBI. And you, the book, I think, details in a really remarkable way the sort of modern history of the FBI and a lot of their, their failings in this arena and dealing with modern technology. And so the sleuths kind of seem to have arisen as a, a consequence of that, of the FBI's, uh, you know, cumber, the cumbersome bureaucracy of it. Uh, and so so how did you... Tell me about this, the community, how, how it came together. Did, like, are, are these people that work... In concert, are there multiple groups? Are they split? Do they all get along? Do they know who each other are? Do you know who they are? I know who some of them are. Some of them I only really know by their handles and their you know their history. Which what's nice about this is both the FBI. What's nice about this for both the FBI and for me is that I can check this right. I can mm-hmm. check the work. I can look at what they did, work this backwards, find the connections, and make sure that these are accurate because they just you know can send you everything mm-hmm. that, where they show up. Here's where we made this connection. There's someone being sentenced this week. Um, uh, it named uh, Airhorn or um, uh, Airhead Lady with her with her son, um, who was known as Airhead Boy, because they had worn uh, these emergency escape hoods mm. as they left the Capitol building. Um, and that was a case where the FBI actually raided the wrong home. They went to a home in Alaska, uh, knocked down this woman's door, put them in handcuffs, put her and her husband in handcuffs, and started questioning them uh, about where Nancy Pelosi's laptop was. Um, and that's because. They thought that this woman was a woman who entered uh, into Speaker Pelosi's office um, and was involved in um, stealing that laptop, ultimately helping get it into a backpack of another individual. Um, and they got some a human, actually, who apparently knew this woman, the wrongly accused woman, who was, I should say, at the Capitol but didn't go inside that we know of. She was just on the grounds of the Capitol with her husband, um, who said that, oh, yeah, that's her, right? So they got a human to say who knew her, and that's sort of one of those instances of, you know, the the human eye isn't isn't the greatest, right. and human witnesses aren't necessarily the best. Because um, if you look very closely, there's just a lot of differences between those two women. They had a you know an earlobe uh, attached, for example, is one of the uh, the differences. And the husband actually remarked at one point, you know, that my wife is much more attractive than uh, <laughs> uh, this uh, this woman. Or she'd so. never be caught dead wearing that outfit, Correct. right? Correct. Exactly. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's you know that's where sort of a lot of this uh, as the, the skills that they brought to the table. Um, have really come to bear. And that was one of the things, like one of the sleuths remarked to me that they think that that work was some of the most important they did because, you know, it cleared or at least helped get attention off of a woman who was wrongly accused uh, mm-hmm. and had her home raided by the FBI uh, because they didn't check their facts and they didn't really go through all of the open source ways they could do this or do even a face check. Really, they could have just compared photos. Like, you, don't use your eyes. Computers are better at this. Like, run that through a match to make sure that those mm-hmm. are the same person. Well, and that's, you know, so much of this book is about the, the, the use of facial recognition technology and how, I mean, and vi- I mean just the, the massive volume of video evidence of the January 6th attack. And that seems to be where the FBI just was completely in, in over its head, was that yeah. they don't know how to handle cases that have, that are, have an enormous load of video evidence. You I think you wrote about how they were still getting evidence on flash drives that couldn't hold large files. Yeah. And so the sleuths or not didn't have the same sort of constraints um, and so, so how did that, I guess, how did that work? How did the, the sleuths realize, A, that they could be useful to the FBI? How did the FBI realize that the sleuths could be useful to them? And how does that relationship work to this day? I think one thing that I was guilty of and a lot of people were guilty of in the first days was overestimating the FBI's capabilities, right? Because they came in with this big, strong message. I remember one of the things, uh, we comments we heard in one of these early press conferences was, you know, we do big, right? We've done mm-hmm. this before. We got this. But if you look at what they thought the scope of this was at the very beginning, 
they thought there were 800 people who were you know, like you know going to get arrested who were involved in this. Maybe 800 entered. That's what they were sort of looking at the max. And now today we have uh, 1,000, you know, 100, uh, and that's only a third of the people who could be arrested. There are more than 3,000 people who could theoretically be charged based on the way that prosecutors have laid this out, which means they either entered the building or committed some sort of violence or destruction outside of the building. That's sort of where the parameters have landed at the moment. We're never going to get to that because right now, even when you had that massive influx of resources in that first year when most of these arrests uh, really took place, Mm -hmm. um, you know, year two and year three, you know, we're probably about the same as year one. Um, that's, you know, not where we're going to end up in the end of this. The pace just isn't going to keep up. So now it's more about what cases are going to be prioritized. And it really is, frankly, you know, the Salus who are putting pressure on the FBI being like, hey, we sent this in two years ago. What's going on with this right. one? There's a, a funeral home uh, co-owner um, in Long Island who they just really were sort of publicly ragging the FBI about right. saying, that's hey, the guy we... with the wasp spray, right? Correct. The... Yeah. And that's, and I, I got a tip of, like, that was one of the ones early on that I was like, oh, no, this person's going to be arrested too, like, soon. This was 2000, you know, 21. Um, and I was just like, no, this is going to be too obvious. I'll focus on another one. And then flash forward, you know, two and a half years later, and finally he's charged. But they were, you know, sending out tweets saying, you know, do you need a, do you need a Google address, you know, mapped to his house? Because there's just no doubt he was with his son. I mean, there was so much confirming information there. Um, well, you write about this a lot in the book. You mentioned people who have not yet been arrested, and mm-hmm. so obviously you don't identify them by name, um, but you're, you point out you know, things that are on video that you've seen with your own eyes, yeah. people committing violence, people committing all sorts of the worst sort of crimes that you think the Bureau and the Justice Department are prioritizing. People know who they are. They basically have verifiable, confirmable evidence, but they haven't been arrested to this day, even years after that's been uh, surfaced. So, I mean, talk about talk about that a little bit. Are the, the, the sleuths frustrated? Do they get? Do they feel like the FBI is hearing them and and values them as a resource? I definitely think uh, a lot of the sleuths know how valuable they are to the FBI, but they are just really frustrated by the bureaucracy, right? And there's been a lot of turnover um, in the two and a half, more than two and a half years since this investigation started. Um, but you know, in the early days, they were really sort of sending things into this black hole and to sending it into the you know, national tip line, and then who knows where that goes or mm-hmm. who knows who reviews it, um, if it's ever come back to. Because there have been cases where the sleuths later on would follow up and say, oh, hey, um, you know, we've put together <laughs> a case against someone, here's all the evidence, and then instead of basing it off of how the sleuths ID'd them, the FBI mm-hmm. just went back into their database and found someone who knew that person who, like, you know, on January 7th or 8th was like, hey, here's this person's info. And, you know, you could base the uh, the case basically off of that. Um, but I think they know how much they're appreciated, but there's definitely a growing sense of, of frustration with uh, some of these cases not being brought to fruition, especially when you see all of these conspiracy theories mm-hmm. uh, blow up around individuals. Because, you know, we've seen some really sort of absurd out there conspiracy theories who oh, this person was the one really controlling this, or we're mm-hmm. all going to blow this up if, if we just identify this person, right? You know, um, And the, a lot of those people have been ID'd. Uh, there's one guy um, who broke a window and was pulled away by another rioter, and like there are millions of people who have seen videos, and this is promoted really big on the right wing, that this guy was obviously a Fed or obviously Antifa. Like, just 100% stated as fact, oh, an obvious Fed, ha, he's working for the Feds, we caught him, no idea who the guy actually is. Now, this is a guy who I read on the book who I went to his Facebook page, still up there the other day. It's like MAGA 100% all the way. He was arrested for threatening a, a Democratic politician before all of this blew up. Pleaded guilty in that case afterwards. 
um, and still hasn't been arrested uh, yet by the FBI. And that's one of the sort of cases that is really frustrating because you see all this misinformation and if there's no, and you're sort of waiting on inaction. But meanwhile, these this misinformation, uh, this disinfo is heavily mm-hmm. ingrained in people and who will you know never see the correction two years down the road. Right. Where, no, actually, that guy wasn't Antifa, as it turned out. Just another Trump supporter who thought the election was stolen. Well, that, that's a fairly common theme when, when some of these people are arrested after, after like you said, those yeah. theories have been built up. Um, but, you know, you talked a little bit about how the sleuths view it as particularly valuable when they can knock down bad information almost as much as when they can provide good information to help ID people. There are some cases you mentioned, um, in, in one one very prominent one, uh, in which the sleuths have actually found uh, information about crimes that were committed by particular rioters after they'd already been charged and even convicted or pleaded guilty to lesser charges. Um, one of the ones that comes to mind is Zach Real, a member of the Proud Boys, who was charged with seditious conspiracy, which is one of the gravest crimes charged. Um, but talk talk about this episode emerged in trial, so I wonder if you could talk about that and how the sleuths played a role. Yeah. And this is uh, one of those ones that is, it was uh, uh, for the defense attorney, essentially, what happened was we were going into a long weekend. Uh, They were directly examining Zachary Real on the bench, and they didn't want a situation where Zachary Real was going to be questioned by prosecutors on cross-examination just before the weekend and then have that sitting in jurors' heads for a long weekend. That wasn't going to be beneficial. They wanted the last thing... Uh, that jurors heard to be a very sympathetic sort of portrayal of, of Real talking about his background and the things mm-hmm. that he would talk about on direct examination from his own um, attorney. Um, and because of that uh, decision to sort of spread things out and really just, you know, kill a day, essentially, the sleuths got to work. And over a long weekend, we're able to surface uh, images that show Zachary Real with a can of pepper spray spraying officers. Um, and that was something that emerged from another... Uh, from another case, public video that was mm-hmm. that was put out because it was released in connection uh, with another another case, and they were able to spot that. Well, well and, and it's so amazing because one of the sub themes of the Proud Boys trial, again, probably the most serious trial of all January Six riot based trials, was that well, they did, there's no evidence that they committed any violence or mm-hmm. min- limited evidence that there was any physical violence committed yeah. by any of the, these you know men on trial, and. Uh, it just took a, it took them a weekend when they realized they had that one last opportunity to to completely undercut that entire narrative yeah. and catch what I would, in my view, look like Zach Real unaware on the stand that they would even surface this evidence. Um, and and after he leaned in hard. He leaned yeah. in very hard to, yeah. I did not assault anyone. Right. And just, you know, there it goes. And it really is just astonishing that, you know, for that was the one of the most serious investigations yeah. of this entire matter, and that was something that the, mm-hmm. the FBI managed to miss, and I think it's just because they're not good at organizing right. this video behind the scenes. Well, and, and a lot of your book, and it's one of the things that surprised me about it, um, in, a, in a good way, I mean, I, I expected to read a lot about the sleuths, and I did, but there's also sort of a modern history of the FBI in there, and, and some of the reasons why they weren't necessarily equipped to do this huge uh, post-January 6th investigation. Um, and, and, you know, something you pointed out was, again, the the ideological history of the FBI, but also their reluctance and hesitation about things like domestic terrorism. Talk about how that factors in here and how that led to sort of the rise of the, the sleuths, I guess. Yeah, I think there's this really, there's this thing within the FBI where they're very eager to say that two things are equal. And in reality, if you look at who is killing individuals in acts of political violence, it's almost entirely on the right. That is where we see 
deadly political violence coming from. I'll say specifically deadly, right? Because, mm-hmm. yes, Antifa has committed a, a bunch of assaults. They're also not really that well organized. But it's just a mm-hmm. different beast. If you want to look at the body count, that's where you need to really have your focus on is the right. And, I mean, it makes sense. Uh, there are just ideological differences between the left and the right. Uh, even, you know, during the heyday of really... Uh, efforts from terrorism from the left in the 1970s when you saw bombs happening even at the U.S. Capitol. Um, there was really an effort not to kill anyone in a lot of those things. They effectively, those bombs really were effectively press releases, exploding press releases as, as one author described them, um, that would happen on a constant basis. Um, but they really were not about killing people. And I think that that's really just where we see this difference today. You know, you have one side that is very into guns and weaponry and very into 1776 and you know we're on the other side you sort of have more of a punch a nazi sort of mm-hmm. scenario and it's not really more about that deadly political violence while there are certainly deadly individual deadly acts the body count is just much higher on the right and i think that's one of the things within the fbi that they're really struggling with because um you know that gets really complicated because you don't have and when you're talking about international terrorism a contingency of you know hard <laughs> you know of um Islamic extremist within the within the, the the house, right? Who are going to say, you know, oh, right. like support all of these? That you're going too aggressively against Islamic mm-hmm. extremists. But as soon as you step on something on the other side, you know, all of a sudden you're you're getting called to the carpet and called in for a hearing if if anything sort of goes out of whack. And it was just a really difficult situation there, and because you know, obviously Trump is driving a lot of this political mm-hmm. violence. We saw that time and time again, um, where Trump's rhetoric really did. Amp people up, and was mm-hmm. and you know, and we saw that with the bombs that were mailed to uh, by Caesar Syak, uh, you know, a, right. A, right. a strip club uh, bouncer who was ma- mailing off bombs to all of Trump's enemies. Um, so you see these events, but they can't really talk honestly about this, and it, it just sort of, you know, before January six, it seems sort of obvious that if you convince a bunch of people that the election was stolen and say this is the last moment to save their country, some of them are going to do some pretty stupid things. And, you, you know, uh, you get at some of the, the, I mean, the FBI itself as, a, as an organization was sort of, you know, politically sympathetic to the right uh, historically. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's in some ways it's almost almost comical that they're now portrayed as, as sort of being these sort of ultra, ultra lefties who you know, wanted to yeah. subvert, you know, pre- prevent, uh, you know, Trump, Trump or, or, or in, in a wrongful way prevent Trump from, from winning re-election or, or hurt his, his chances. Um, but then, you know, you, you talk about the Bureau um, as, uh, you know, their just general discomfort going after domestic terrorists because of the, you know, the co- Americans are entitled to constitutional protections that yeah. international terrorists don't have. Right. Um, so I guess how, how does that, you know, how did the loose help get around some of that um, Internal that bureaucratic problem that they face, where they actually, there actually are legitimate constitutional yeah. issues when you are targeting Americans, uh, you know, over very politically sensitive uh, crimes. Yeah, and a lot of the rhetoric that is sort of commonly used, even is somewhat violent in a lot of mm-hmm. scenarios. You know, targeting and all sorts of words that are used around. You know, fight like hell, for example, really mm-hmm. is, is prote- that's protected speech, right? Because that doesn't necessarily mean a physical. Violent fight. You're right. not saying attack. You know, there's just a lot of language that we use in politics that really is in this sort of in between area. And the FBI was just overwhelmed with the volume of that mm-hmm. uh, ahead of 
uh, January 6th. You know, the day before January 6th, they had, I think, you know, 10,000 tips come in, 5,000 of which had to do with political speech. Mm-hmm. And that amount was like triple of what they normally had gotten, say, a couple of years earlier on an average day. Right. Uh, so just really an overwhelming amount of information. But the way they approached that was by talking about, you know, sort of lone wolves and in individual circumstances. So if someone said something really awful and violent, they would look at that individual specifically. Maybe they would go talk to that person and rule out that person as a, as a specific threat. Mm-hmm. And that's really the way that they were thinking of this, as sort of a lone wolf scenario, not realizing the power of the mob and the power of organizing a mob on a specific date, on a specific time, with a specific purpose, and how that would sort of bring this, coal, uh, this coalition together. Because, you know, the FBI had done this sort of red cell um, activity just before the election, about a week before the election, where they sort of speculated on what the scenarios could be if the election had been disputed. And just imagine trying to have that conversation within the FBI, right? Your boss is really Donald Trump, ultimately. You're part of the executive branch. Um, And you can't really speak honestly about the obvious consequences of this. You know, a couple weeks earlier, he's saying, stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys. Are you going to write a memo that says what the president is doing is a danger to national security. You know, get ready to get called in the Congress for that one, right? Like, if you write about January 6th being this looming threat and the president's organizing this and really pushing this mm-hmm. and really motivating a lot of uh, people to violence, that's just really going to, I mean, that's going to backfire on you very quickly. So you have to talk about this all speculatively and with right. uh, the sort of, uh, both sides of them that doesn't exist. Just the, like the one moment that really crystallized it for me is last year, the January 6th committee was questioning this top FBI intelligence official at the Washington field office um, and saying, you know, they're talking about Jan- uh, about the December 19th tweet from Trump will be wild that obviously mm-hmm. inspired a lot of this, really got people moving. Um, and, you know, she conceded that, yeah, as it got closer to January 6th, we saw a lot more heated rhetoric. And then she, then there was a pause. And then she added on both sides, and like, let's just let's just be frank about this. There was not militant Joe Biden supporters who were plotting to storm the U.S. Capitol to overturn an election won by their preferred candidate. That just doesn't right. make a lot of sense at all. But there's this very instinctual thing, you know, almost like it, they feel compulsively obligated to be like, oh yeah, on both sides, we're looking at this, and it's just not the reality. But it's this really strange situation that we're in. Is there any evidence that you've seen that the FBI has ad- adapted, learned? change at all throughout the course of this investigation, either through their experience with the sleuths and seeing how they operate successfully in this envi- in this arena, or just in general as an institution based on some of those blind spots that you identified? I think we saw in the Washington field office specifically, we saw a lot of new leadership come in within that first year after January mm-hmm. 6th. Uh, we also saw a new intelligence official in a higher capacity, uh, sort of one of the only positions I think within the country that they elevated it's sort of, you know, in the weeds within the FBI, but they elevated someone to a different position that created a different position, essentially, uh, to worry about intelligence specifically mm-hmm. focused on uh, the Washington region. Um, so I think, obviously, realizing that they were sort of caught flat-footed here um, and that they needed to make sure that they had a better awareness of what was happening. And I think the disconnect between um, what's happening within the FBI and what's happening online is just huge, but it really does get complicated and dicey when you're talking about what is protected free speech. You know, no one's... If someone is even just a supporter of of ISIS, for example, uh, you can't even retweet something that you could actually charge someone with material support mm. for uh, for say retweeting something mm. on their behalf. There are just more protections, and as there you know should be for protected speech. But it's just a lot easier to pursue these cases and have a reason to investigate someone. Um, who might be supportive of a group like ISIS than it is, you know, for supporting your local militia or something along those lines, which 
um, depending on your state, mm-hmm. um, you might have some legal protection there if you're forming a militia. So I want to ask you about the app um, <laughs> and whatever you're able to say about it. But, sure. the, but uh, you know, the solution, as you refer to it several times in the book, rely on an, an app um, where they basically have assembled their own database of evidence against people who are in the riot. They've I don't know if it's open source or they're just gathering, as, accumulating as much as they can and use that to help track different people in the, throughout, you know, that were there on January 6th um, and, and find some of the evidence they're ultimately turning over. How, what is the app? How does it work? Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, there's, oh, there's a few different tools that, they, that they've used to sort of access a lot of these more open source um, information. Um, you know, that, there's, I think there's a few main ones that they, uh, that they really focus well, who, on. Who built, who built this sort of... Mi- primary app that they use? Sure. There's an individual uh, referred to as, 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 as Alex, who was uh, one of the uh, people really who was, was, uh, was pushing this. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of them have just really brought a really unique skill set and can really, it allows them essentially to access information that is already publicly available online very quickly. So you have a lot of these backups of all the videos. So any mm-hmm. if you posted anything from January 6th, they've probably already got it in, yeah. <laughs> in their uh, database. And that's just all backed up. Um, on public websites that you can access and go into these things. So it's just a way of, I think, surfacing the material that is within those public websites or quickly going to a video, where's this moment? That's sort of what the uh, they've been able to bring to the table with some of these uh, tools that they develop in the background. Alex was a Trump supporter, right, if, yeah. if I remember right from the book. Yeah. And, and as you pointed out, like some of these are not ideological. You can't typecast these people as, oh, they're just, you know, people living in their mom's basement who are <laughs> anti-Trump. Very and successful people. Like, that's, like... Rich family lives, like very successful people uh, who are involved in this. And, you know, there is someone who cracked who was involved very deeply in this, I think sort of in a, in a heated exchange at one point. Um, you know, someone sort of, you know, saying like, you know, what losers these people were. And they're like, I make more money than you. <laughs> and I work in cancer research. <laughs> like, right. Like, it's just it's, it is this very uh, I think there's this again, it's sort of this uh, Hollywood image of what you would think of the FBI. Uh, versus the Hollywood image, or versus the reality of the FBI, compared with this sort of outdated, I think, idea of of, of you know nerds, right? Right. <laughs> or like this outdated of, of people who know students. how to use the right. internet. That's a really marketable <laughs> skill in right. this day and age that actually can right. make you a lot of money. And I think that's one of the problems that the FBI is facing. In addition to the fact that um, you cannot smoke pot when you're uh, a member of the FBI, right, right. <laughs> you know, there's just a lot of these limitations that are, are really uh, setting them back. Because you're going to have to take a big pay cut if you want to join the mm-hmm. FBI if you're a really technologically skilled person. Um, and you know, are you going to stay in for all those 20 years when? You know, okay, sure, you get that. Um, you know, you're, you're going to be paid a portion of your salary for the rest of your life, and then you can get another job, and then that becomes a thing. That's sort of the typical thing with the FBI, where you stay in for 20 years, and then you get that pension, and then you get another job on the side. But in the tech world, that doesn't necessarily make the most sense because right. you know your mar- most marketable skills are probably today, right? That's you got to get in mm-hmm. these companies early. You, you know, the FBI doesn't have stock options to right. be handing out uh, to folks. It doesn't have uh, really cool campuses uh, that people want to go to. In fact, you know, you might be sent anywhere in the country that, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't, it's really, the FBI, I think, is facing a lot of hiring challenges. I just even think, you know, just with my family or with anyone else's, if you could, if you were to sign up for a job that said, hey, they could send us anywhere, just imagine how your spouse would react to that. And and also the salary is not that great, right? They could just, right. buy, like, and we're going to maybe have to live somewhere we don't want to live, you know, not in the place we prefer to. Um, it could be sort of anywhere, and um, you know, it's 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 a tougher, I think, road for them sure. to recruit, especially on the tech side. Of course, and then well, and so just returning to the app, uh, it organizes this video in a way that that I think 
I mean, I mean, is it really just a clearinghouse, or is it actually, can they actually use it to comb through and fi- identify people who, you know, maybe the, F- the FBI has some evidence on them, but they can find them in other locations, other spots in, uh, at the Capitol, and use that to sort of supplement the evidence the FBI may or may not already have? I think it's that, mostly, like, everything that it pulls from is public, so it's mm-hmm. just more like pulling from what is uh, available um, online. But I think you can see it sort of in some of the um, sentencing memos and whatnot where they're like, you know, at this moment, on this moment, blah, 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 blah. You can, so I, when I read a lot of those affidavits, I'm like, I can sort of see the, the hand um, of, sure. of the slew sort of moving behind this, even if they're not directly cited because the, you know, the government isn't finding <laughs> random videos on the Internet at a specific time right. at, you know, without that. It's interesting. You know, sometimes they're very explicit about acknowledging you know, we, yeah. have a, we have a confidential human source who happened, you know, who isn't connected to anyone in this case, but they're just open source researchers, and, yeah. and they'll cite them explicitly um, in the F- in the government filings. Mm-hmm. And other times, they're more opaque about it, and kind of say, you know, that they, they use euphemisms about where they got the information right. from. Is, is there a consistency? Like, wh- no. do, you, do you have a sense of why they, they do it a certain way sometimes and not at others? I, I think it just varies on the field office that's um, that's handling these, and I think there have been instances where they probably, you know showed a little bit more than I think the, the, the sleuths would want necessarily, right, where it's just ob- sort of obvious on, um, on the face of it. Um, you know, there have definitely been screw-ups on the FBI side uh, that sort of sure. uh, showed probably more, I think, than the sleuths are necessarily uh, comfortable with. But, you know, obviously there are some of these individuals who have officially signed up or, mm-hmm. you know, are on the tab. But there's a lot of – the world is just a lot larger than that. And what I sort of mentioned in here is that there is one person sort of at the center of this – um, who I, you know, met with very early on in the process and mentioned in the book, um, sort of, uh, uh, who is really playing an essential role here in sort of organizing and getting mm-hmm. this information uh, to the FBI and is willing to testify should it come to that mm-hmm. point. Because that's really what you're sort of putting on the line there. But in reality, like, unless there's not really much reason for, logically, there's not a lot of reason for someone to have to actually testify. In it hasn't happened yet, right? It, it hasn't yeah. happened yet and, like, it wouldn't be of that much value, right? Because it's... It's the video. It's about the video. It's the video. Yeah. yeah. And it's not, like, they can't, you know, all, like, the way you can... Authentication is a big mm-hmm. thing for these criminal cases. And you can, you know, do that in a lot of different ways, um, whether it shows the same scene, whether it's backdated. A lot of this information mm-hmm. you can just vet basically on the face of it. So really, you know, the, I think the only reason that you would see sort of this pursued was because... You know, a defense lawyer sort of had an, an axe to grind rather sure. than it really actually has to undermine the case. Because it's just publicly available evidence that anyone, journalist, sure. the FBI, can vet on their own and independently confirm. Um, you mentioned at one point, I think early in the book, that the FBI was pretty aware of your, your own communications with the sleuths. And you know, were, I guess, maybe worried that, you know, if, if they were also simultaneously feeding the Bureau and feeding you, that it could mm-hmm. somehow in- influence some of the case, the ongoing cases. Did you find that that was, made it harder for you to, to get, you know, talk to some of these people? Or were they, they were less willing to be forthcoming with you because of their own relationships with the FBI? Somewhat, but there's also that tension between them and the mm-hmm. FBI, right? They aren't completely on the same page, and they're really frustrated mm-hmm. by a lot of this. Um, you know, um, there's a mention, uh, Alex mentions at one point, that we're all going to be really pissed when we, we, we learn what was going on here. Because there's just a lot of things that, that don't make sense behind the scenes and don't seem to... Um, really add up for why there are these these delays. And I think there are just a, new, a number of different factors for why these cases haven't been um, brought forward. Um, sure. But it's it's definitely really frustrating because you know, we're getting to a point where there are going to be people who 
um, when January 6, 2026 comes around and the statute of limitations uh, expires are going to, you know, get away with it, right? And I think that that's, especially for the violent ones, that's mm-hmm. something that the sleuths really um, want to prevent because I think the way that they think about this is that you're going to have millions of people who believe a crazy conspiracy theory about the 2020 election, who believe that the election is stolen, and no amount of reason or logic is ever going to break through with them. So the only thing that you can really do is make sure that those people who believe that conspiracy theory are not going to take action on it and make sure that they know that if they do take action on it, there are going to be consequences for that. And I think that that's what the Slews have really um, concentrated on and think of themselves as a wall as we go into 2024 uh, when we're mm-hmm. going to have most likely um, the de facto uh, Republican candidate Donald Trump um, saying again that the election was stolen and, you know, probably saying that mm-hmm. he, no matter what happens, probably saying that he, that he won in 2024. Sure. How does someone become a sleuth, and how do these communities sort of form? Do you sense that, they, that these are people that, again, are there different groups? Are they different? Do they all get along? Do they trust each other? How do they, be, how do they become trustworthy? If they don't, do they know each other's identities? Or how, What's your sense of that world? They do. I mean, so there's um, one of my favorite moments was two individuals talking to uh, one another, you know, who thought they knew each other well and, like, knew vague things about um, their identities, and one said, you know, that they would be a, becoming a parent soon. And uh, one of the slews ended up sending um, this individual uh, tips on breastfeeding, only <laughs> to learn that they were talking to the dad. Uh, so, um, but you know, and now you know, we're at the point now where they exchange Christmas cards, right? So there are people who have who know each other by their identities, but a lot of this has just been screen names and track records. And you know, I don't think there have been a ton of new people who have joined since that first year. It's been that core group who really. How many people are we talking about here in your, in your estimation? <laughs> It's hard to say because there are a different number of groups. I say you know dozens is probably mm. in the in the right um, in the right frame, um, but there are different groups, and also there are de- different levels of, of dedication and activity. And some of the groups have shifted. You know they ha- they did were in these little groupings. Some there's some overlap between those groups, mm. um, and a lot of this is happening in sort of the you know the apps that um, people use to communicate, uh, so, sort of similar to Slack, right? Mm. Um, that they just sort of have these these group chats where they can all communicate and all sort of commiserate. And I think that that's an advantage that they have over the FBI as well, because you just think of the FBI sort of doing all of this via email to, like, a field office and then waiting. The timeliness of, of active mm-hmm. group communication is really essential. And I've seen that even in our, in our, our own work as well. There are a ton of story ideas um, that I've had only from, like, active commu- actively communicating in a group setting with a bunch of different people and just sort of throwing out something and like this is, you know, and then that sparks an idea and you really just can't replicate that within the FBI. They sure. have individual chats, but also everything's documented forever and turns up right. in discovery and then you can't even sort of have these sort of water cooler moments um, to a certain extent because all of that's going to be turned over to the defense. So you can't, like, there's a moment where they talk about an affair or something like that. About the same same Proud Boy we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And it like, you know, they're just sort of jo- joking around popcorn emoji. I don't, you know, they say, oh, I got the popcorn or something like that. And all that is turned over in Discovery. Well, I, th- I thought that was a very interesting point. So the, the link system is there, right? There, yeah. there are their internal FBI messaging system and everything they say there is discoverable to the defense yep. uh, for the most part. And you even saw in the, in the, a few years back, um, when they're like, um, an FBI employee was talking to, the person, like two FBI employees, were talking. They later married, but they were sort of just discussing politics one on one in general, and all that turned up, and then it became this huge thing, made it its way into an IG report, mm-hmm. and like you know, you just it just is this environment where 
you can't talk freely, really, yeah. and you have to be so careful because it's not because like, there's already so many people who believe that the FBI is is, is really biased. But you know, uh, Chris Ray has really emphasized not only um, you know the making sure that we're not using we're not politically biased, but also making sure it doesn't appear as though we're politically right. biased, which just makes it impossible to have just open sort of conversations that you would have in right. other in other settings. Um, you know, you talked, you mentioned early on that you know, or you mentioned a few times actually, the, the sleuth sort of feeling certain uh, responsibilities about not just doxing people, not trying to upset the FBI's cases, and yeah. trying to you know, while helping them and being sometimes being frustrated with them, not doing anything that could jeopardize a case. And I think in, in the book, and you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing yeah. um, was an example where there was some footage that came out, and people analyzed it, and they analyzed it very incorrectly. Um, and it created a you know a crisis at the time, or at least a short short lived crisis, till they found the actual bombers. Um, how did that e- episode shape what happened here? And then there was an interesting connection between that episode and yeah. January sixth. So I'm curious to for your take on that. Yeah, that was one of those moments where it was just like Chef's Kiss, right? Chef Kiss. Yeah. It was perfect because I was trying to figure out a way to connect the Boston Marathon bombing and how disastrously things went there with January sixth itself. And then lo and behold, it turns out that someone who was at the press conference. Uh, who was a, uh, F, or rather a Boston uh, canine officer, uh, was in the background of a press conference, and he was, you know, caught on camera, right? And that uh, that image uh, of him, pretty clean face shot, showed up online. And when they sort of went to do these uh, searches of the individual who was at the Capitol, they figured out who this was. He was a guy who's now been charged with uh, attacking a, a police officer uh, at the Capitol, inside the Capitol, with a chair. Um, and it's just sort of really brought everything uh, together, a good way to link this up. But, yeah, I think that, like, the Boston Marathon bombing really could have been a moment when the FBI pivoted. I was watching a documentary that came out, I think, earlier this year about the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, and that was something, you know, I know that the F- that was something that the FBI learned about first via tweet, right? Like, that was mm-hmm. someone saw this come in, and then that's what sort of set everything off in the, the FBI's response off and got everything um, into gear, but they really struggled with the amount of incoming evidence and videos that they were receiving. They sort of put one of those things up and said, hey, everyone send us everything you got here, right? Um, but then because that was sort of into a closed system and then only the FBI had that, you had these people who were trying to figure this out online, wrongly accused um, some people, and then ultimately that's what sparked uh, the FBI choosing to put out photos of the actual suspects, sort of basically to get the attention off of innocent people who were wrongly accused by, you know, people right. online. Um, and that's what ultimately they got a tip from a family member off of, and that's what caused um, the arrest. But I think that, you know, there wasn't... <laughs> the FBI does not have the capacity that they need just to organize that kind of a video behind the scenes. And, you know, I think that what they really need is basically similar to what you have on your, your phone, right? That's, mm-hmm. I think, a w- good way to describe this is, you know, if you go... If you have iPhoto and you go into your iPhone, iCloud library... Um, and you swipe up on a photo, um, you're going to see, hey, is this that person? And then it links it to every other person, and all those videos are interconnected. And, like, it's kind of simple technology. Millions of people have that in their pocket right now, but it's not something that the FBI has the internal capacity, or at least their tool uh, th- that they do have along those lines is not, you know, is not up to grade. Well, but you, you pointed out, too, that the, the sleuths sort of, they were aware of that episode, mm-hmm. um, at least some of the ones you talked to, yeah. and, and viewed it, as, made, made, they, they knew that if they got it wrong... Uh, or if they may, had any similar blow-ups with their own assistants that the yeah. FBI might write them off or might not take them as seriously and sort yeah. of took it upon themselves to be thorough and yeah. accurate in a way that has, I mean, I think has borne out because mm-hmm. the FBI still leans on them very heavily. 
Um, but so how, how aware were they that if they that there was a chance that it could go very wrong yeah. and that they could you know damage the their, that entire uh, process? Yeah, I think early on, like John Scott Railton was one individual mm-hmm. who really was involved in these early days and sort of you know setting the standard, laying out the rules and saying we do not name people publicly online. Let's use these hashtags. Let's do this all behind the scenes. And we did. There was. Over a course of probably a few months, while there, there's still a lot of activity that, of this that happens on Twitter, or at least there was until mm-hmm. more recent changes at Twitter turning into X, um, organizing this sort of out right. in the public. Uh, but now, you know, a lot of that did full, go sort of behind the scenes where you're in these, um, these groups that are, you know, even though you might not know everyone that's in them, or at least not publicly available mm-hmm. to everyone in the world. Um, that these are you can have internal conversations and hey what do you think of this it really is sort of a peer review system almost um, for a lot of these uh, for a lot of these sleuths because they can challenge their you know preconceived biases or challenge their um, if there's any you know errors or jumps that they made along the way that you can't really get to and just sort of vetting it and fact checking it um, and a lot of the little details like you know ears are obviously like I sort of mentioned. Um, freckles, tattoos, all of these things are really things that really bring these over the line in addition to finding people if they're together. And that's something that really checks out because, it, you know, one, while one facial rec check uh, might, you know, bring up someone who's not really there, although even then if you can find them in D.C., you're pretty solid, um, or you find evidence that they were in any way in, involved, you know, right, right uh, where they were January 6th or January 5th or January 7th, um, or going to their Venmo is another way of uh, going down that line. Um, but if you find two people together and they both have a facial rec check and then you find them in that environment on January 6th and then you find them in another environment completely outside of that context, you're good to go, right? Because you're not going to sure. have two people identical who are in both environments together. That is that person. <laughs> so it's just about sort of accumulating multiple data points that can sort of increase your confidence about, you know, identifying someone who might be blurry in one shot, but then, or they, they wear a mask in one shot, yeah. but then they removed it in the next one. Exactly. With um, Airhead Lady, it was actually her rings, uh, who's, hmm. you know, she, uh, you know, the facial rec check was great. Um, they went down that. Then they found the, 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 there, that was another case also where there were two together. It was her son. So then they found a bunch of images of her son when he was like a teenager. And then Facial Rec said wow. that that was the same person, blah, 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 go down that line. Um, but then also just the rings that she wore, like when she's reaching for the cord on Pelosi's laptop, you can wow. see the rings on her finger. And then you find a Facebook photo of her, say, wearing those same rings wow. on those same fingers. And I think it was a pinky ring or something along those lines that sort of stood out. You mentioned you mentioned Airhead Lady. You mentioned the hashtags yeah. and a couple other examples. Talk to me about the importance of those monikers that you know the Sleuths use to identify some people that maybe they've identified by their real name, maybe they haven't. But yeah. why do they use those, and how are they important? This is another case where I think where the FBI's aversion to controversy is really setting them back because there are still people being added to the FBI's Capital Violence webpage, and even someone like me who is deep in the weeds on this and. Covering, you know, beside people like us who are following sure. this very regularly, how often do you go to the Capitol violence? Right, it's rare, <laughs> right, rare, right? And like they just don't pop. And you can't write a story. No news organization can write a story about number five hundred and thirty-six added to the FBI list if all you have is this photo. And you can't like say this is what this person did or. The nicknames is where that comes in here. With bank robbers, the FBI is comfortable doing this all the time. They'll give Mm. somebody a nickname even if it mocks them, whatever, something that's memorable. And because they give them a nickname, you know what that does? That results in a lot of news coverage. You know what a lot of news coverage does? Gets people identified. And it's a pretty easy process here. But they haven't done that in any of the January 6th cases. And I think it's entirely just because of of politics. If you gave these people nicknames, it would blow up. 
right? You could just gently mock them in some way, and mm-hmm. that would all of a sudden pop. We saw that with uh, the woman, the pink beret, uh, mm-hmm. pink beret, where that was something where it was only because it was sort of funny that the FBI tweeted a photo of a woman in a pink beret that that went viral. And because that went viral, somebody was standing inside of a Joanne fabric, standing in line with their buddy, and their buddy turns, their, grabs their phone and says, hey, check this out. Um, and he's like, oh, my gosh, that's my ex-girlfriend, right? That's what you, you need, something that pops and is interesting and really gets in, you know, people's social media feeds. And that's not something that's happening, really, uh, with just these sort of, you know, clean-cut standard number 537 has been added to the FBI's list when you don't even know what that person is. Right, you're not, you're not going to have hashtag 537, but you will have hashtag Pippi Longscarf yes. or hashtag <laughs> bald, bald Eagle was a, was a fun one, or, yeah. or the sw- Swedish Scarf is one that comes up yeah. uh, often. Yeah. Do you have, first of all, do you have a favorite nickname? <laughs> it's tough to say. I do think uh, Bald Eagle, even though it doesn't work well as a hashtag because, you know, a lot of people are just hashtagging Bald Eagle sure. for actual photos <laughs> of Bald Eagle. It's funny because... He, uh, the funny part is, is this guy in this um, American flag suit uh, who was wearing the entire time, almost the entire time on January 6th, to the rally, etc. Uh, and like while they were attacking cops, a bald eagle um, face mask or just a full, full on, head full head mask. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then at one point, it, you know, during the really, when he's in there, like that, you sort of think that's funny. And then he's like really in there during the fight. Um, but at one point, you know, he uh, he takes it off, and it turns out he's also bald. So it worked on two levels. I thought that was kind of a funny one, although it's not the greatest um, hashtag in the world. But yeah, there. I mean, there definitely comedy is a big part of this, and that's something that I kind of, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. these 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 slews are are have become friends and have have these sort of really fun relationships and have a lot of laughs off of this. It's a really you know awful day, but it's just also there is a lot of it that's just so absurd and ridiculous. Um, that it, you sure. can't help but laugh at some of it. When you have people who are invading the U.S. Capitol who think they're invading the White House and openly saying on camera, here I am, touching the White It's just inherently funny. <laughs> that was, if I remember right, Doug Jensen, who I think you, raised, who you wrote about in the book. He was, yeah. Were there other examples of you know, rioters you know, who maybe got a lot of news coverage, maybe we know. He, he was part of the mob that chased Eugene Goodman yeah. up the stairs, very memorable uh, imagery. Um, were there any, were there specific cases that you chose to focus on, and how did you choose which cases to focus on of the thou- thousand plus that have been brought uh, in the book? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think some of it just depended upon what was available and what were the most interesting stories. And you know, the one I think of with that, it, which ended up in a, in a in a podcast that was really well done, I think it was called "Will Be Wild," um, mm-hmm. was uh, Danny Rodriguez, the one, the mm-hmm. you know, uh, Taser Prick, as he was first um, nicknamed, the guy who drove the stun gun and who. Uh, we identified about a month before uh, he was arrested, um, and because just because of the way that case played out, and because there was a challenge about the Miranda warning that he got, um, and whether he was properly advised about his rights, we ended up with this video, audio transcript just of him spilling his guts to the FBI, um, and it was just fascinating. And the same thing with Jensen, right? That also came out yep. um, through the court process when you just have these raw materials that really give you an insight into what these people were thinking. Um, was, uh, I thought, a good way to sort of tell the story and something that, you know, necessar- wasn't necessarily uh, something that a lot of people did a deep dive on. You know, Jensen, for example, right. no one was reading the, that, that transcript, but I thought it was really enlightening just to hear about his, his life story and how he got to this point um, and really, you know, raises a lot of, uh, of core questions about when we're in this environment where so many people believe these um, sort of crazy conspiracy theories. Um, you know, who's ultimately responsible for the inevitable consequences of people believing that, you know, the election was stolen or right. that, you know, because it just, it just really does 
seem like one of those things that you're like, of course this was going to happen if people believed this. Right, that just, right. you know, like what else do you think they're going to do? Do you think they're just going to go down there and hold up a little picket sign and say, oh gosh, and then when, you know, the election, when America is ruined in their mind and, you know, they just say, ah, gosh, ah, oh well, get them next time, and then, you know, they think the next election is going to be rigged. It just, you can't have a system like that where there's no trust um, at all in any institutions or in, in just basic, um, you know, common sense or basic reality. And, and you, know, you talk about reading some of the court filings, some of the transcripts that come out. How, talk, when you put this book together, and I mean, I, I, I combed through the, the index to see sort of in, you know, hundred pages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, ton, tons of it is based on your own your own interviews, yeah. your own source work um, over the years, um, and your own history covering the Justice Department. A lot of it is piecing together court filings, uh, court transcripts from trials. I mean, ha- talk about the process of writing this book. Um, how how challenging was that, and how many how many court filings did you have to oh, go through to piece it together? There's a lot. Um, yeah, I think that like the story is really just sort of sprinkled in a lot of different ways. And one of the, you know, the great things I think that the January 6th committee did, however you feel about their final report and what they decided to do in terms of basically, I think, in the written report and in their public hearings, giving the FBI mm-hmm. a pretty big pass, I think, um, what they what was nice that they did is that they they gave all the raw materials over. So mm-hmm. you can sort of read all of these materials and form your own conclusions and also you know, I read through thousands of pages of, of FBI FOIAs that haven't gotten a lot of um, a lot of eyeballs on them sure. necessarily, but were uh, dumped online. Some FOIAs from uh, from DOJ as well. Um, and it, yeah, I think like compiling that story and getting people to understand it more broadly, how this came about, um, it was important. I think that that it ended up the the lead up to January six ended up being I think more of the book than I originally had had thought, and I think that's because. Um, you know, I thought this was such an important story and one that I think is still getting overlooked because right now you're not having serious discussions uh, within Congress about what needs to change at the FBI, how they could be doing better. There's Sure, there's an inspector general re, uh, investigation that's been ongoing, and you know, maybe we'll get that before the three-year mark, but it also could be complicated by the fact that it in, involves uh, Jeffrey Clark, the former mm-hmm. uh, DOJ official who is very much at the center um, of uh, a lot of this uh, and you know, was obviously charged in Georgia and is essential to the case uh, being brought by Jack Smith against um, Donald Trump, I believe. Is a, you'll correct me on this. Is a, one of the cons- co-conspirators? He's, he's one of the unnamed co-conspirators. Unnamed co-conspirators. He's, he's acknowledged yes, himself he's, that he is one of them. Okay, there we go. Cleared legal. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I think that that's one of the things that could you know complicate this. because, But that's, you know, I think that this really does need some heat from members of Congress. There was a report from... Uh, the Senate Homeland Security Committee mm-hmm. earlier this year that sort of looked at some of this, but the FBI is not prepared to face the threats that it needs to in the 21st century and is not technologically where it needs to be. It has enormous challenges on the personnel level, it has enormal, enormous challenges on the tech level, and that's what that's the reality that we're in. Like, the Internet is the most important thing, right? Open sure. source is uh, technology, and tracing a lot of that is is the most important thing. Um, and, you know, as good as you can be at, you know, DNA tests, you know, they weren't running any DNA tests on, you know, right. a lot of like, right, it was all open source video. It was like video is where they need to be at, and that's just not the way they're thinking of this. One of the tools that they uh, created uh, that really was disparaged by both every, every party, by, I've heard it disparaged by defense attorneys, disparaged by, um, uh, we'll say, members of law enforcement, um, and, you know, just everyone across the board, um, was focused on written words and focused on PDFs and sorting through that information. That's just not what sure. the reality is. They need really good video processing 
uh, capabilities and just not what they're able to do. In that vein, though, one of the things you wrote about in the book, to a degree, was the the, the unpreparedness, not not just technologically, but there was this massive cleanup done at the Capitol <laughs> that removed an extraordinary amount of physical evidence yeah. because people were just sort of, what do we do next? And yeah. Congress wanted to come back in. They wanted to remove the evidence mm-hmm. of the attack right away, clean up, get the building looking like the Capitol again, and that led to evidence, the probably crucial evidence, yeah. being moved or removed um, that may never be recoverable or never, yeah. certainly wasn't. Um, <laughs> what, what did you make of that? And like, what, 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 why, why did you mention that in the book? I just thought it was like, it's one of the, I, I completely get the instinct to just clean this up, right? But like, that was a massive crime scene. Mm-hmm. And when you have literally the next morning, like the scaffolding company out there, like looking at the damage and then people going around with, you know, um, uh, blowers, you know, like right. dusting all the evidence away and stirring up all of the uh, sort of pepper spray that had settled down. It just was, that should have been, you know, much better documented and analyzed than, um, one the case that this came up on, was, or it's come up in multiple cases, but one of them was someone threw some sort of uh, grenade or something into oh, yeah. the the tunnel. It was some sort of explosive device into the tunnel, and the they didn't have anything to analyze on what it was because they didn't pick up all right. of those pieces of material. So you would never had a situation like this. I think it was mostly because Congress was like, "Let's clean this up." I think that's who was directing it. The FBI was, you know, not not in full control of the scene at that point, even though. They probably should have been more, and there was this thing to like, you know, we need to get democracy back on track here. Right. But it really did, um, you know, a lot of this evidence was just lost, where you had people throwing things in the trash can and cleaning up as quickly as possible. That what could have been valuable evidence down the line. And one of the defendants was a Swedish scarf was the nickname. I think didn't wasn't that one of the pieces of evidence that either either was removed or yep. was discovered later somewhere yep. and, and a trash bin somewhere. Right? It's yeah. like that that scarf is one of only seven hundred in the world or something. Um, and uh, yeah, and that was actually uh, Sergeant Gunnell. Um, was uh, he? He sent me some of the photos that he took uh, after um, the Capitol attack, including you know the damage that was done to his hands. But he was That's just, was. and he was. That was the moment when he was looking for Roseanne Boylan's identification, mm-hmm. um, and actually found it um, on the ground. It had been oh. you know sort of lost there, and that's how they actually figured out this is who um, Roseanne Boylan, who sadly died on January six, was. Um, but that was one of the photos that he snapped, and you know there's a bunch of weapons there too, right? And you know that's really important when you're talking about especially deadlier, dangerous weapon enhancements. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to that point, those evidence and what that material actually was is really essential, and that's not something you can necessarily always determine um, from a video. You mentioned Sergeant Gunnell. You talked about Officer Fanone, the MPD. Um, you talked. You, you clearly talked to the, you talked to them over the years. You talked to them for this book. Um, what was are they, are they as are they do they know the sleuths are they bystanders what do they think of of the sleuths role in, in helping solve the crimes that were committed against them? Um, I think in public, Gunnell has acknowledged that he's talked to um, the sleuths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, there's some relationships there, which which you know, Gunnell is going into all of his uh, videos um, that happened that day, um, and you know, really sort of because he didn't have a body camera was the big thing with him, so. He's really like everywhere um, on January 6th. He's at, in so many of these fights and was assaulted so many times. Um, and he really has to piece it together because the Capitol Police didn't have body cameras. With with Fanon, it's sort of easier. Here's my entire experience, right. front to back, recorded. Um, sure, you can get other pieces of evidence from elsewhere and you know that sort of thing. But you know when you have someone assaulting you to your face, he's that's going to be documented, right? Their face is going to be captured, or a piece of their clothing is going to be captured, or something about them. Um, Will be captured and documented, whereas you know Ganellis has to piece all of this together. And um, I don't think there—I don't think I'll speak more broadly, not just him, but I think that there are some are some frustrations about um, 
the support that they've gotten, you know, from mm-hmm. necessarily following up with victim impact sure. things. Like, you know, he, there's been situations before where he's had to, or Ganell specifically has had to um, ask for, you know, to make a comment at this at this sentencing or something. Like, he'll he'll get blindsided, and I'll send a tweet, and then he'll be like, "Oh, this guy's get, he assault like right? He was involved in this assault, mm-hmm. you know." But they didn't know that that sentencing was happening and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it's a really complicated sort of bureaucratic nightmare to handle all these things. I don't envy anyone who's charged with organizing this inside a really sort of antiquated um, system. But, I mean, it just it's pretty clear to me that things ne- there, there needs to be a shakeup. Well, maybe this is the answer to the question. We are running out of time, but I, I wanted to ask you what surprised you the most in the course of researching this book and putting this book together. Like, what did you learn that you didn't expect to, or what, what was your you know, number one takeaway, I guess, after this whole pro- massive project? One thing that really clicked for me that I don't think I really registered um, was how Trump's efforts to sort of use the Justice Department um, to overturn the election really just so fundamentally overlapped with the lead-up to January 6th. I don't know if I just sort of missed that, but you know, these, this showdown that we had in the White House... Uh, where Jeffrey Clark was supposed to be installed as attorney general or was saying he was going to take this job. There was this huge face down bef- with all these Justice Department officials. That happened on Sunday night, on, on January 3rd. Um, and actually what had happened just before that uh, was that there was an important conference call talking about January 6th. It was, in, I think, 1 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, right before the acting attorney general of the United States and the acting deputy attorney general mm-hmm. of the United States got on that call, they talked about how Jeffrey Clark had just told them uh, that he was going to take the job, um, and that was it, right? He thought he was going to, the acting attorney general of the United States thought he was going to be fired via tweet. The acting deputy attorney general of the United States went into his office, started taking things off of the wall, boxing them up, getting ready, because that was it. They thought that they were at the end of the line. So you might say that they're a little bit distracted uh, Mm -hmm. in the lead-up to January 6th, especially when they just lost this critical tool uh, that w- the FBI just lost this critical tool that was monitoring all of this. There's just a lot of chaos, and I think that that chaos ha- distracted, had to distract from what was happening on January 6th. Because just imagine, you spend a late night at the White House in something that would have been something for the history books. Like, that, that was effectively the Saturday Night Massacre, same sort of deal. That was like democracy on the line. And then, oh, what, you roll into... You know, next morning, Monday, with you know, and forty-eight hours late, like in, within forty-eight hours, there's going to be a massive attack on the Capitol. Right. It's just there's no one who could handle that sort of sort of pressure and just dealing with the bureaucracy. You're getting hit from all sides with that, and I think that that was something that I re- really didn't necessarily click for me um, until I was sort of deep into the book. Is just how that really was such a distraction mm-hmm. in these critical moments leading up to January 6th. Well, un- unfortunately, we have to leave it there, but uh, remarkable achievements, Sedition Hunters, how January 6th broke the justice system. Uh, incredible book. Uh, honored to read it and, and join you today. So thanks for, thanks for doing it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was great, and I'll see you in the courtroom soon. Thanks for listening to the Afterwards podcast. We want to make sure you know about our latest podcast, Books That Shaped America. It's a companion podcast to our 10-week television series of the same name. We've teamed up with the Library of Congress and selected 10 books from across American history that have had a major impact on our society. Each week, the C-SPAN television program will focus on one of these books and its impact. This companion podcast will give you more background on the book's authors. If you want to learn more about books that shaped America, go to our website, c-span.org. The podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.